And so this idea of dark skin being unattractive and ugly is obviously an old idea from Victorian England. But what's happening today is a lot of these women feel bullied enough to use these really harsh chemical products. So they, they're willing to take more risk-taking behavior to use these products to become socially acceptable so they're not rejected in society. And what ends up happening is they actually end up destroying their skin more. So it ends up becoming this really negative feedback loop where they're bullied, they get damaged skin, and now they're even worse off than what they were before. And so a lot of these women end up getting really bad mental health problems and some end up committing suicide. And then that problem, I wish it was just related to beauty, but it's not because employers who select women for visual roles, for example, flight attendants or receptionists, if there's two women with exactly the same qualifications, they will always pick the lighter woman. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast And thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. My next guest is entirely fascinating and someone I believe we can all learn a lot from. Zinia Kumar is a scientist, chartered ecologist and model. She grew up in Western Sydney in a low socioeconomic area And following some deeply impactful advice from her chemistry teacher, she applied herself within the public education system and became the first in her family to go to university. What was the advice? Zinnia's teacher told her that if she worked hard, she could be anything she wanted to be. It's safe to say Zinnia took that advice and she hasn't looked back. An introvert who self-diagnosed and treated her own social phobia as a teenager, she now lives in London and is studying for a doctorate in colorism at Oxford. A published scientist, Zinnia has focused her research on human attraction, examining beauty standards and ideals, and more recently, colorism, specifically the deadly issue of skin color stigma in South Asia. This conversation is an entry point to learning more about skin colour discrimination and representation. But we didn't stop there. Zinnia also opens up about modelling, the racism she experienced from Australian agencies, the potentially life-saving reading she had with a palmist, why science and spirituality can coexist, and why she chooses to practice equanimity. She opened my eyes and my mind and I hope she opens yours too. Here's Zinnia and I for Offline. I'm popping us in after I asked her to share the moment when she realised she was more than just shy.
I wanted to talk very briefly about um, social phobia and you've been yes. transparent in you know some interviews before about um, suffering from that. So first I want to say thank you for just sharing it because I think a lot of um, people will sort of hear and see their story in yours. One thing I wondered, can you just share, how, how did you overcome it? What did you do um, like in a practical sense? Um, so actually there was a moment, so I didn't actually know I had this thing for many years. So I just thought, you know, I'm just shy probably. And there was a moment that actually kind of really made me realize and really triggered it. Um, I I won't go into too much detail, but I, I suppose I could, it's fine. Um, so my sister had this friend of hers who would always come over to our house and always say hello and he would also drive us around like sometimes to like the local fair and that kind of thing and I was always like sitting in the back I wouldn't say anything I was just really quiet and he'd been in a motorcycle accident so he was in hospital for three weeks and so he came to meet my sister because they were best friends the day he was let out of the hospital so he, he came over and I opened the door so he pressed the doorbell I opened the door I went over and he said hey is Ash home and I just kind of stared at him and I was like and then I looked at the floor and then I went and got my sister and that was it like I didn't say anything I didn't say hello or anything like that and then you know the next day we got a call from his mum around lunchtime and she said that he'd actually passed away Oh. And that the last people to ever see him on earth was like me and my sister. Oh my God. And that was kind of like this moment where I just really felt so helpless because I felt like he was a friend that I'd never met or never had the opportunity to meet, even though he was right in front of me. And this barrier was like from inside me. And I just felt terrible. I felt terrible for weeks because I was like, you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't say anything. And that's like, you know, I'm a terrible person until I started to realize, then it just kind of hit me one day that, hang on, maybe there's a problem here. So when I started to like look into, I realized I had social phobia and it was the most intense kind. And so what I ended up doing was I went to the local library at first and I read every single book on the topic, every single one I could find. I read the whole shelf actually. That does not and surprise then, me. <laughs> <laughs> And then there was like, and then so once I had all, like all this knowledge in my head, I was like, okay, let me try all these exercises that they're telling me to do. So the first one was to, to learn how to hold eye contact with yourself in the mirror. And this was, I think, the most extraordinarily hard thing I had ever done. I, I couldn't even hold eye contact with myself for about two weeks. Like I tried every day for two weeks and I just couldn't do it. And then I finally managed to do it. And I was like, oh, okay. I've done one thing. So I felt that a little bit more um, a courage to do something else and then a little bit more courage to do something else. And then so I eventually reached a point where I was like, okay, today we're going to talk to one random person on the train, even if it's a word. And I remember it was like about four attempts before I finally got to say, I think it was an elderly lady and um, I just said hello. And then she said hello back to me and I was like, I was over the moon. I was like, oh my wow. God, I've spoken to some, somebody. And it just kind of like continued onwards like that. And what I started to realize was that 
sometimes you just get rejected. Like people would outright just not be interested, but that's totally fine. Cause I was so afraid of, I guess, getting rejected in social situations that I feared talking to people for so long. And then there was a point somewhere along the line where I read an old diary entry and I'd managed to talk to seven people. Most of them were like one word. It was just hello or goodbye. But I was so <laughs> proud of myself that I wrote this diary entry. Um, yeah. And I suppose it just kind of continued on from there. And then I joined Toastmasters, which is a public speaking society. When I read this newspaper article about this lady who had Asperger's and she started Toastmasters to get over her public speaking fear. And I was like, oh, okay, this is something I'm going to do. So I did that too. And that really helped me get out of my comfort zone. And then I ended up doing, at the end of that year, a speech to like 2,000 people at Sydney Town Hall. So that was like, I was really proud Whoa. of that. <laughs> this is incredible. I feel like people that don't even, you know, experience, suffer from so social phobia, they would never yeah. do that. So that's like quite incredible you know as you were talking um yeah I just got this flashback of this um experience I had um that I guess I'd kind of tucked away um you what you were doing somebody did to me and mm. I just have to share with you that like not in a I'm the best way but like I'm a really I pride myself on being a really kind person yeah, and, I, yeah. and giving people a lot of my time and putting my attention like fully, you know, in totality on people when I'm talking to them. And I'd had, um, this is when I was in my old job and I'd had an extremely busy day and I'd um, hosted a panel after work and then I had this award ceremony and I was up for an award. Um, that's when I was mm. like addicted to winning a win, winning awards, you know, because well, congratulations it's how I, anyway. yeah, it's how I defined myself. <laughs> Um, and I was running from the panel to the award ceremony, which was, um, just down Pitt street mall. And I had, you know, my dress on and my heels on and, you know, mm. I was just like exceptionally, um, you know, busy that day. And this guy, um, as I was kind of like running, stopped me and said, oh, excuse me. And for the first time and only time in my life, I turned around yeah. and I said, I don't have time. And yeah. he looked at me and he said, oh, I, um, I've just tried, I'm just trying to talk to one person today and he yeah. had chosen me. And I just oh, like, when yeah, you were yeah. telling that story, <laughs> like, I was just like, fuck. Yeah. Like I just, it rang out, like it made me feel so awful in the moment because, um, yeah. you know, I, and I said to him, I'm not like this. <laughs> like I went into defence straight away to be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, but it's so interesting because it's just, yeah, I was the other person on the side of that. Um, and, you know, I sit here today saying I would I would hug that person. You know, that's something I would be like, yeah. amazing, congratulations. But in the moment I did the opposite. Um, so that's but a little it's lesson. actually great that you did interact with him. So he probably actually still felt quite proud that he got a response from you. I know I would even when people rejected me, they were like, no, sorry. And I'd be like, yes, I spoke to someone still. Well, so I guess that's true. Just... So that's what it's about. It's not actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. about the response itself. It's the fact that you actually yeah, said the yeah. words. And, um, anyway, that's... <laughs> oh, God, I'll be Don't worry, your conscience is clear. <laughs> it's clear now. I'll be thinking about it before I go to bed. Um I want to start talking a bit about um, sort of the research that you've done because it's extremely fascinating. Um, without going too much into the backstory, you experienced some misogyny, which, you know, many women have, um, and it led yes. you to study human attraction, which then led to the publishing of 
two um, papers on negative frequency dependent selection. I feel so smart saying that. Um, <laughs> and your findings actually went a bit viral. So I read all the articles that people had written on the back of it, but I wondered if you could share with us, what was your hypothesis for those papers? Um, so what we were looking at, so negative frequency dependent selection, first of all, means negative frequency means less often dependent selection. So basically is what is rare attractive. And so the hypothesis we were actually working off was an animal hypothesis because I think, so Charles Darwin was the first person to kind of come across negative frequency dependent selection in animals as kind of a way to, I guess, organize mating and sexual selection. So what I mean by that is some animals would find a rarer phenotype which is the external part of the animal more attractive so maybe a particular type of stripe or a particular type of spot and so no one had ever actually ever done it in humans before so we were like okay this is kind of interesting should we um apply this to humans so i looked at men's facial hair so this was clean shaven men men with five days of growth men with 10 days of growth which was heavy stubble and then um, two months of growth, which was a full beard. And then I also looked at women in blondes, brunettes and redheads. And so we were looking at if what is rare would make a difference. So if you walk into a room of brunettes and you're the only blonde, are you going to become really attractive? And so with women and hair color, interestingly, there was actually no difference. So if you walk into a room full of blondes and you're a brunette, there's nothing, there's no difference. But when it came to men, there was kind of this really interesting difference. So if you walk into a room full of bearded men and you're the only clean-shaven male, that clean-shaven male suddenly gets perceived by all the men and women in that room as more attractive than all the other astute men Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So if you walk into a room full of clean-shaven men and that one male with heavy stubble or a full beard walks in, he suddenly becomes super attractive. So... For men, it seems to kind of, I suppose, make a difference to what the other men around you look like. But I mean, I have to say that particular study only applied to European men because that's all we looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, yes. It's really fascinating work. And you've also done some sort of work in sort of like defining beauty. And one of your findings was that it's nothing more than a perception and that it's ever-changing in different cultures, of course. Yes. So what was really interesting was, so I was giving a, um, it was a speech for the South Australian Cancer Council, and it was a group of women who were actually ex-breast cancer, um, ex-breast cancer survivors. And so a lot of these women felt really uncomfortable about their bodies and their former bodies, and they felt less feminine because you know, the most feminine part of their body, which they felt had been basically removed. And so um, so I went through like some journals and what I ended up finding was that beauty is this thing, when you think about external beauty, it's ever-changing. So all throughout time, I mean, think about just 10 years ago, what was beautiful is not necessarily considered beautiful now. So, you know, there was this big bust I guess 15 years ago really big busted women with very small bums I guess I suppose the Pamela Anderson Cindy Crawford kind of body shape that was mm. the 
the ideal body shape for women and everyone was kind of really trying to aspire to that and then liposuction in the butt area really increased actually as women ended up getting liposuction in the butts and larger breast implants put in and you know you flip that now to you know, 15 years later and it's kind of the opposite now where people want to get butt implants put in mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know the bigger bust implants removed so as you can see, I mean, with that just small example, beauty in terms of body shapes and what we think is facially attractive is always changing. But what we found was considered the most attractive, no matter at which point in time, was when people felt beautiful from within. Because it just kind of, other people can feel that. And then if you're a spiritual person, what you'll notice is when people feel happy and beautiful from within, you can feel that wonderful positive energy coming off them as well. So it's kind of something that transcends age and time. And Mm. what you find is this kind of beauty you don't really find with young women. You find it a lot with older women who've really come to terms with aging, what they look like and how they are. So it's quite interesting that, you know, yeah. There's, um, you're so right. I feel like there is a frequency to it, isn't there? like people who are just yeah. um, innately happy and they might not so much have a lot necessarily or have all of the things that society's defined as beautiful or successful, but there's something about them um, that something does kind of... Something infectious about them. Yeah, yeah it's, definitely. So I, I guess my question then is who who defines beauty? Like who, who do you think is defining beauty? Is that the media? So... That's a really interesting thing because I guess when you think about it in the way we just talked about, there's kind of like two ways of defining beauty. So there's that inner beauty, that innate beauty, which everyone could have at this moment in time if they chose it for themselves. And then there's the external beauty, which we all kind of, I guess, aspire to in that way. And and I feel like that's kind of like a combination I mean, in terms of beauty ideals at this point in time, I feel like it's a combination of popular culture, media, and then also to do with like plastic surgery and aesthetic clinics. So um, I'm just going to give an example, like lip fillers, for example, weren't big lips and lip fillers weren't always considered the standard of beauty for women. Mm. And when this idea started to pop up in people's minds that big lips equals attractive was about the time Angelina Jolie started becoming very famous. So people thought, Oh, big lips, she's got big lips. Uh, so therefore they must be attractive. Uh, and then obviously these aesthetic and plastic surgery clinics were like, hang on, we can make a quick buck out of this. So what they ended up doing was using those, those popular culture examples to justify people into coming into their clinics to get lip filler put in, which would then make these people kind of think, so they were able to make people think, sorry, that bigger lips would make them 100% attractive. Whereas when we actually did a study on them, like human attraction scientists did a study on big lips and like, you know, beautiful eyes, beautiful noses, whatever they were considered beautiful in popular culture at the time on a single person's face, what ended up happening was that person's face would actually become less attractive. So it turns out those features are only attractive in isolation. So just big lips on a face that necessarily doesn't have all of those other things that we consider attractive. Mm. So what ended up happening with this lip thing was um, in popular culture, what people thought was attractive 
from seeing other people socially and what they actually thought was attractive or what scientists thought was attractive was completely different. So one of your core research focuses right now is colorism and specifically skin color stigma in South Asia, which is um, very targeted. What is skin color stigma? And I guess what experiences or observations led you to that sort of very specific topic? So I guess what led me to it in the first place was actually completely random. So I ended up doing these beard and hair studies and then I was like, hang on, I'm not really helping anyone. I just feel like I'm judging people. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> and so it just kind of felt almost vacuous that I was just doing this thing for what, like self-pleasure or something. So um, I suppose it was a bit of an existential crisis. And then I decided to take a year off and I just kind of went exploring around Asia. And so I ended up in a couple of mountain temples meditating and I was teaching English as well (laughs) as you do of course right and um, I ended up in Thailand and I was teaching English there as part of an Australian government foreign affairs scheme and I noticed that one of the girls in my classes she'd always kind of like sit there in the corner and keep to herself and I thought she was really cute and so I went over to her one day because she had pigtails in her hair that particular day. And I said, oh, I really like your pigtails. They're very pretty. And I remember she just stared at me. She just kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And then she replied back to me, I'm not beautiful because I'm not light-skinned like the celebrities on TV. I mean, this girl was five years old. So I, I, I couldn't wow. understand where she was getting these ideas of beauty even before she was able to form her own and it just kind of really upset me and I remember having that thought in my mind for a little while and then as I traveled through the rest of Asia what I I noticed for the first time because I wasn't really exposed to it in Australia um with these skin bleaching ads so as I traveled through Hong Kong China Singapore and then into India all I saw it was these skin bleaching ads and not just skin bleaching ads, every beauty ad, every clothing ad was obviously either an over-lightened local celebrity who'd been lightened to oblivion, or it was in India in particular, which was a really big trend, Russian models who were wearing a sari with a tikka on their head, um, basically passing off as Indians. And what ended up happening, which is what I noticed in India when I was on the ground, was that people couldn't actually tell the difference between a Russian model and an Indian model anymore because that's how omnipresent these European disguised models were in India. And it just kind of made me really sad that people couldn't even identify their own race anymore because of this omnipresence of this idea of what is marketable. And so obviously I got really pissed off. And then I (laughs) remember coming back to Sydney and I was like, you know what, I'm going to change. I am going to change this myself. I'm going to have to do something about this. So I wrote research proposals and sent it to Oxford and UCL and both of them accepted my project. So I started working on them, um, on the project. And Amazing. What, and what colorism is, is it's called discrimination based on skin tone. So in Asia and South Asia right now, that is based on 
people with darker skin tones are more discriminated against. And in Europe, there used to be colorism. So, I mean, in the 19th century, there was colorism against European women who were pigmented, whom the local Victorian public would call tainted women. And so these women in Europe would try to bleach their skin to become lighter so that they could fit into the social stereotype of beauty at the time. And, you know, they were using things like mercury, um, toxic chemicals and that kind of thing to really lighten their skin. But obviously what would end up happening is they would damage their skin. And these products kind of existed in the beauty world well into the 20th century when beauty globalized out of Europe. So when beauty globalized, it globalized out of Europe and it was selling products to the entire world. So Europe was selling products to Asia, South Asia and Africa. And so when the European beauty ideal shifted from light skin to tanning in the mid-20s to to late so mid-20s to mid-30s is when it shifted to tanning. A lot of these brands realized, hang on, we've got these products. We don't know where to sell them because our European women are not buying them. And so when I went through records um, of both Chinese and Indian magazines from 1900 to about 1950, what you see is this huge shift in the 30s where products that were being sold to, I guess, women in European women in Hong Kong and European women in India, they were being sold with bleaching ads with a a drawing of a European woman. And they were saying, you know, you can use this product to to make your complexion better. And in China as well. So they shifted that market and they started using local, I, I mean, I don't like the word, but ethnic, local ethnic women in these ads. So there would be a picture of a Chinese woman with this bleaching product now or an Indian woman with a bleaching product. So, and that's how they shifted their market. They realized, hang on, we need to create a new market. So that's what they did. They shifted it. And as time went on, these ads became more and more derogatory. So as you go through um, the ads from when they first were introduced in the the late 20s, early 30s to about 1950, it went from you can make your complexion more beautiful to are you not getting jobs? Are you ugly? Are men not interested in you? You need to use this product. And it just became more and more derogatory over time. And this beauty ideal ended up becoming a part of culture because intergenerationally, grandmothers would see that, which they would pass on to their daughters and daughters would then pass on to their daughters. So it ended up becoming like a three or four generation issue. And the ads just became worse and worse over time. I was going to say, it's kind so, of like um, they're, um, they're almost abusive. Yes, they are. Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of like psychological warfare in these ads because, you know, the, and with reason, because the bleaching industry is set to make $31.2 billion in five years' time. Wow. That's globally from, yeah. So they're not going to stop at any time soon. They're just going to keep continuing if they're making that much money. Like L'Oreal will be advertising diversity in Australia and America and England, but in India and China, they're going to be um, doing bleaching products still because that's what works for them financially. And it's unfortunate that, that no one really realizes that the same brands might be pushing for something in one country and not another. 
So it's a bit hypocritical, I think. But well, um, yeah, and this is the thing: is we only see what's put in front of us, right? So exactly, right? Exactly. So you know, the world—it's just what we see and the news mm. and around us. So we don't actually know what's actually going on. Um. So when I got into the skin bleaching thing, I, at first I just thought it was all surface level, like beauty and you know, like because whenever you talk to anyone about skin bleaching, the first thing they say it's just like tanning. But there, it's not really because tanning is a natural process, but bleaching is a chemical process. You can't bl- lighten skin beyond its natural shade unless you're using really harsh chemicals. And so when I started getting into like more detail about skin bleaching, what I realized was um, it's so much deeper than what we think it is. It, there's psychological damage. There's economic disempowerment of women there's medical physical destruction of skin as well so in india what i found was that 60 percent of women who use skin bleaching products which is most of the population because that's the only product available on shelves actually have skin damage so they actually have to go to a dermatologist to fix the skin that's been destroyed by these skin bleaching products and the the problem is these advertisers just keep hiding all of these issues um Yeah, like there was an example, I think it was 2014 in Japan, um, a new skin bleaching product was bought to the market. And I believe it was 12,000 women that summer in the space of three months all ended up getting permanent skin damage. They all ended up getting vitiligo. So they all had complete depigmentation of the skin on their face. And this, this brand literally just paid them all off, small amounts. And then made the whole thing disappear. And like this is it never stuff you can buy the off place. the shelf in the supermarket. Yes, that oh. that was stuff that you can buy on the shelf in the supermarket, and that's in India and Asia and still in China. And that's because most of these products, there's a particular um, loophole where you can sell pharmaceutical grade products as cosmetics on the shelf and get away with it. And then on top of that, so what ends up happening in India is a lot of these women who are socially bullied because of their skin color. And most of this bullying actually comes from these ads in popular culture where people with dark skin are still really bullied. You watch like an Indian movie and in the songs there will be like Gore Gore, which means light skin, light skin, beautiful girl. And um, you'll see them, you know, being quite derogatory against the darker skinned women in these Bollywood movies. And so this idea of dark skin being unattractive and ugly is obviously an old idea from Victorian England. But what's happening today is a lot of these women feel bullied enough to use these really harsh chemical products. So they, they're willing to take more risk-taking behavior to use these products to become socially acceptable so they're not rejected in society. Mm. And what ends up happening is they actually end up destroying their skin more. So it ends up becoming this really negative feedback loop where they're bullied, they get damaged skin, and now they're even worse off than what they were before. And so a lot of these women end up um, getting really bad mental health problems and some end up committing suicide. And then that problem, I wish it was just related to beauty, but it's not because employers who select women for visual roles, for for example, flight attendants or receptionists, if there's two women with exactly the same qualifications, they will always pick the lighter woman still to this day. And so what ends up happening is this element of economic disempowerment where lighter skinned women are able to access resources and goods that darker skinned women cannot. Um, and then when you talk about marriage and relationships, men, unfortunately, I guess it's changing a little bit in India with the younger generation, but men 
still prefer lighter skinned women. So they will prefer the lighter skinned woman with no education over the darker skinned woman who's say a doctor. And that's just, I suppose, a cultural preference that needs to be changed. And so I got really annoyed about all of this. I can imagine. I'm annoyed now. Yeah, I don't see why someone should be discriminated against because of something they can't change. It makes no sense. I mean, you should look at the quality of a person inside, not the outside. And so what I'm aiming to do right now is try and destigmatize skin color. And I think the best way to do this is actually raise awareness of the the medical, psychological and economic issues that surround this problem and to actually lobby the Advertising Standards Council to ensure a diversity of skin tones because people don't feel represented. They're continuously Mm. going to feel that they're still unwanted in society or not representable worthy. Like if every beauty brand only has light-skinned people, people who don't fit into that stereotype are going to think, oh, I'm obviously not beautiful Beautiful. enough to, Mm. yeah. And this is that whole thing and we talk about it a lot, but it's like, you know, women and men, sure, but like women and particularly because we, you know, have this, for whatever reason, this sort of natural disposition that we have a lower self-esteem, we need to see ourselves reflected back at us in media and in advertising and, yeah. um, and you know, what I guess I, I've been, you know, worried about um, is diversity as an initiative. Um, like one of the reasons yeah. I felt quite compelled to leave my last job was I mm. felt like I was being asked to put, you know, my sort of integrity on the line um, to sell branded content campaigns um, that might have been like an Asian special or a curvy mm. special or, you know, or yeah, that'd yeah. be like that sort of token one sort of um, darker skin girl. And definitely, it was just getting to the point where I was like, oh, I can't put my name on this anymore. I can't show up every day yeah, and, yeah. and actually be a part of the problem, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Running sort of women's lifestyle websites. I totally agree with you on that because I feel like a lot of this push for diversity, I mean, the word in, in itself, diversity, implies segregation. So diversity implies there's a normal and everything else that's not normal, which is basically, you know, normal is considered white European women. Everything that's not normal is your curvy woman, it's your hijab woman, it's your Chinese woman, it's your Indian woman. Whereas the word representation, which I don't really feel like brands have got onto yet, implies everything is normal. We just need to show it in a way where we're not like, I guess, cherry picking out Mm -hmm. segregation. So I feel like the way we've approached diversity, I guess, in society recently in the last like two or three years, it's just been like, I mean, in terms of fashion, quite recently, I've noticed um, Chanel in particular, I just, one that stuck out in my head. For the last like two or three show seasons, I mean, they've been saying we're the most diverse brand in like France right now. And I've actually looked at their shows in terms of um, ethnic diversity or ethnic representation. And they've just put black models in or white models and nothing else in between and they've called their shows diverse. I mean, that's not really representation. It's just polarization of representation. So mm. I think it needs to be re-examined in a way where it actually is representation and where brands aren't just trying to make a quick buck out of looking like they're repre- representative. Exactly. On that with the brands, like 
how do they move to a place where they're in consultation with community versus mm. coming from like, well, you know, and not to dismiss marketing directors or anything like that, but the people yeah. who are making decisions about, you know, who's in campaigns and casting directors who are deciding who's in shows, instead of going, okay, well, yeah, do, does this look diverse enough? Actually going yeah. into communities and consulting with different minority groups to um, ask them, <laughs> you know, what, no, what I do totally you need to see because, from us? Yeah, because most casting directors, most brand directors, they're all from like actually the same ethnic group from the same culture, like from, when I say same culture, like the same cultural group, usually from the same economic group as well. So how can someone who's from one particular, if, if a whole structural of a, the whole higher level structural uh, part of a company where they decide marketing things are all from one level or one perspective, they're all going to have the same idea and the same ideals on something. So what's going to happen is if they've all been exposed to the same kind of biases, um say for example maybe they've consumed media that's highly islamophobic or highly anti chinese or anti i don't know brown or something maybe if they're from like i guess south africa and they've experienced a lot of anti black culture while they were growing up they're going to have that internal bias and if everyone has that bias what's going to happen is without realizing that that bias is going to come out. So the only way to change diversity and representation is to actually make sure the higher level management or the higher level marketing teams are actually representative of the people they want mm -hmm. to represent because otherwise you're not going to have a diversity of thought. You'll just have the same type of thought really over and over again. Mm -hmm. There's a big lesson for anyone listening who <laughs> might be wondering how to um, be the change. <laughs> You know, Definitely. There Make your we teams go. diverse, guys. <laughs> that starts inside the business. Um, so you spoke about fashion and um, now is the point where I also share that you're a model, which they've probably already heard in the oh, intro. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love your use of sort of psychology and human behaviour study in your approach to modelling. So um, you've oh, given yes. an example before, and I'd love to talk about it now, that you went to yeah. the same casting twice, both times wearing different things, and one of the outfits got you the job. Yeah. <laughs> so share that story with us. Uh, can I name the brand, or is it better to not name the brand? Um, look, these are honest conversations. I feel like we should just be. All right, be, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, let's do it. Okay, so um, I went to this casting in London for Vivian Westwood. And so when I went, first went the first day, I wore um, this black tight mini dress with nude block heels. And so they kind of saw me and they were just like, no, thank you for coming. And I remember getting a message from my agent saying, you guys don't go again twice. And then so I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to go again twice because why not? But this time <laughs> I decided to change my outfit. So I wore a white vitamins T-shirt, like an oversized white vitamin T-shirt with um, black cargo pants, like baggy black cargo pants and black combat boots. And then I went in and it was like, they didn't even recognize me as the same person. And they actually put me in the show. So it was mm. just kind of like interesting. So you can actually change perception around you just based on what you wear, because everyone kind of works off stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So they just take everything for face value more than you think they do. Mm -hmm. Oh God, that's such a good story. What did you say <laughs> to your agent? 
Um, I, I didn't actually tell them actually at the time. They, I mean, they rang me yelling. They're like, why did you go again? But it's okay. You got it. So, and I was like, oh, that's fine. All right then. So You're yeah, like, no, my experiment just... <laughs> worked. <laughs> yeah, that, that was me. I was like, yes, my experiment worked. I need to do this more. <laughs> Vogue India listed Zinnia as one of its most influential global Indians. She's walked for international designers and been featured by titles including LUK, Imprint, Matches Fashion, and Farfetch. But I was interested to know more about her goals as a model. Is it less about securing covers and more about redefining beauty ideals? I guess it all kind of begins... If I go a bit further back, it all kind of begins with... um, I guess that a lot of the meditation practice that I was doing when I was in Thailand, um, what I ended up realizing that everything is kind of an illusion around us. And so even the idea of a cover, it's an, it's not really, it's nothing more than like an award or an accolade or a, a runway. It's nothing more than an award or an accolade. So because I've realized that, and I know that none of these things are actually tangible in that way. And so I don't really want to, define myself by I guess things that I guess are worldly if that makes sense so Mm. originally I started modeling because um someone told me no so originally I was scouted in Sydney and by an English casting director actually and he told me to go into all the agencies in Sydney with his card and so I went in and they all said no we only take Anglos or half Anglos. And because I was full Indian, they were like, your ethnicity doesn't work here. Have you ever tried in your own country? Obviously offensive. So I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand for this kind of racism. So um, I guess I just never gave up. I just kind of kept going until I finally became a model. But it, it was, it was funny because no one would sign me in Australia. I came to the UK and immediately I was signed by IMG Worldwide. So it was just kind of like, you know, who's, where does the bias come from? And so what I try to do with my platform is try to make people question their bias and question why they think something might be beautiful and why they think something isn't beautiful because actually beauty is relative. So how can we define what it is and what it's not? Unless of course we've got biases of what we already thought about it. Mm -hmm. And so I also try to use my platform to kind of, I guess, spread knowledge in that way. And hopefully people can resonate with it in some way or form. Oh, and, and yes, we are. And yeah. you do. Like it's um, it's so valuable. And I'll just say it again, like, thank you. Like you were just this fascinating, um, informative, <laughs> you know, quite inspiring <laughs> woman. And to think Paradox. that you're, yeah, in the very best, yeah, yeah. In, you know. <laughs> And I'll say the word yeah. beautiful way, like, and to think that you're 25 is like exciting to me. <laughs> like yeah. the fact that you're only getting started is very exciting. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, um, you know, I mentioned before that I live my life through a, a, a spiritual lens. So that's why it's been so yeah. cool to kind of research you because, um, you know, I felt like, oh, we're such different people really, but I'm um, talking to you or not. Um, but you are a scientist, so you're analytical and you rely on facts and research, you know, to make decisions. I wondered, what is your um, 
and you've, you know, you've said that you've, you know, sat on top of mountains and sat in, you know, silence and meditated. What is your it's view? Such a cliche. Yeah, but it, it's yeah, cool. Yeah. This is what's so <laughs> interesting yeah, about yeah. you. Um, yeah. What's your view on spirituality? And I know that's a really broad question, but um, how do those two things coexist for you? Well, I, I feel like this idea of science and spirituality being separate, it's kind of like this, it's quite a false idea. I don't feel like it's kind of relevant anymore. And I mean, I, I can understand when the the church kind of ran the state and if a scientist would come up with an idea, they would be hanged for blasphemy. So, I mean, that's, I suppose, where this kind of like divide has come from or when people became really ultra creationists and then the evolutionists were kind of like, no, you guys are wrong. And then, I mean, I think there's there, there's logic when there's logic. But um, what I feel about a lot of science is that sometimes it can be quite narrow-minded in that just because something hasn't been studied yet doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm. So what I mean by that is how do we know that when we're being negative or kind of like self-destructive, how do we know that's not affecting other people around us? We don't know because maybe we just don't have the tools yet and maybe we will in 200 years or 100 years time to, to measure that. And, and science is all about measurement. So if you can't measure something in science, it technically in science world doesn't exist. Mm. So, and I think that's something really interesting to remember about science because I think a lot of people think of science as, you know, the ultimate truth, but really it's just measurements, measurements and measurements of likelihood for something occurring or not occurring um, or, or how something works. And yeah, it's not always, there, are, there have been times even in the past where science has said, you know, this is the truth. Like for example, um, Charles Darwin, when it came to skin color in the world um, during Victorian England, even though the, all the evidence presented to him suggested that skin color and the pigmentation is based on latitude and based on, you know, when people are close to the equator or they're exposed to higher UV rays, they have darker skin. But because he was so bound by these ideas of primitivism and non-primitivism in Victorian England, this idea of dark skin being must be primitive evolutionarily came to his mind. Like he couldn't accept that it was just, the way things were. So, I mean, a lot of science is still bound by internal biases of the people who are there. So in that way, I think. It's limited, limiting. It's kind of limited. Exactly. And I mean, in terms of spirituality, my personal, I mean, I, I don't know how to define spirituality myself, but I don't think I mean, I, in terms of physics, this is how I think of everything. Um, but every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction or an energy can only be transferred. It can't be destroyed. So if I'm able to speak to you uh, and there's some kind of energy within me, surely it gets transferred somewhere else once I yes. stop having this external energy, whether that's in the ground or maybe somewhere else. And it's the same with. Um, equal and opposite reaction. So I feel like there is something else there. Mm. But I mean I couldn't describe it in words because I feel like it's more of a feeling. Yes. Oh yeah. 
but I did have a really interesting experience if you want to hear about it um, of course I which do. kind of really changed changed the way I really thought about so spirituality and things that are unseen um so I went to mind body spirit festival in Sydney and I, I went I went with a friend of mine and so I just was kind of walking around and I just felt compelled to see this guy. And I was like, I have no idea why my body is telling me I have to go and see him, but I did. So I went to this um, guy, his name is Master Core. He was an astro palmist. And, <laughs> and so I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. Let's just see what happens. And then as I went to see him, he looked at my palm and my face and kind of like did some calculations from like my birth date and number and location, I suppose. And he told me that I actually should get my abdomen checked out because I might have a tumor. And I was like, yeah, oh, right. God, that's as some if. heavy information. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like the scientist in me was like, as if I'm out of here. So like, obviously I left. And then three months later, I started getting these really horrible stomach pains. Um, and then I went to my local doctor to get an ultrasound to see what was going on. And as soon as she put the ultrasound wand on my stomach, you couldn't see anything. This tumor had literally covered my entire stomach and it, it was the size of a grapefruit, this thing. And we actually had to have it removed immediately. So I actually have no idea how he knew it was in there. I mean, I wasn't wow. wearing a midriff top or anything. I was wearing a hoodie and like track pants. So I was just like, it still blows my mind to this day. Wow. I think there's mysteries of the universe we have no idea about. Well, I guess it's the subtle cue from cosmic intelligence, right, to say yeah. this, this exists and some, and it's like we only ever, um, well, I believe we only ever get the experiences we, you know, A, deserve, B, are ready for, whatever, however you want to think about that. And so it's like you Definitely. were sort of gifted that in this way of saying, well, you've got this curious mind um yeah somebody who you know maybe your platform perhaps wasn't as big then I don't know but for you to be able to share that here in the context of what you do for a living I think it's very valuable for um for us to hear that you know because it doesn't have to be I've actually never shared that with anyone so that's like the first time I'm sharing oh, amazing. It, so I love yeah. it offline I thought exclusive. it was appropriate yes. no it really is <laughs> and you know it's interesting I um you know I see lots of different um I guess, what would we call them, sort of more alternative practitioners and holistic healthcare workers and, you know, all sorts of people. And I will I will share that my experience with a palmist was one of my more profound ones mm. as well. So um, he, he basically told me in no uncertain terms that a teacher was soon to enter my life and that when they did, just to surrender to it and say, yes, don't question it, don't. Mm think about mm-hmm. if it's, you know, wacko or whatever, just do it. And then within a fortnight, um, the meditation teacher that I study under now, um, we yeah. got connected um, through somebody else. And, you know, that was 18 months ago and it's completely changed the course of my life, you know. Amazing. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah, so so I think I should share, I should share that Palmer's details. A few people have asked me, it was in one of my very early episodes and I've never really spoken about yeah. him again. And you know, I'll tell you one of the reasons why is he's a very um small business. It's just him. And yeah. as the podcast was getting bigger, I did say to him, Hey, I'd love to share you, but what I've learned now is when I share someone, there's a likelihood that, you know, people will book. And and he said, you know what, my mum's really sick. And oh, yeah. I wouldn't be able to 
take on the work right now. And so maybe I'll, um, I'll revisit that and check in with him and see how his mum is certainly, but also yeah. ask whether he would, um, cause he did it on the phone. He, I just had to take pictures of my hands oh, really? and then just text yeah. them to him. And then he called me and I was just thinking, yeah. this is loopy. And then he said all that stuff. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, well, I've got one final question for you. Um, yes. Offline exists as an exploration of self and um, it seeks to explore who we are outside of the labels that we put on ourselves. And you do have some really cool um, and interesting labels, scientist and model especially. I love the polarization of that. Um, but when you're sitting in your true self without all of that, so maybe if you take yourself back to the mountain meditating <laughs> and when you're experiencing <laughs> yourself in a more internal state, who are you and what comes up for you when I ask that question? It's an interesting one. I, actually, um, it's really interesting about the labels because I'm actually so aware that they just are labels in themselves. But then when people, other people hear lab, a particular label, like a model or a scientist, it conjures up an image in their mind of what that is. And so they apply whatever image they think in their mind to that label even though when I see it, I just, I realize it's ever changing. I also realize I am always ever changing. And that's something that I believe today, I might not believe tomorrow. And I suppose I give myself permission to do that because for many years I didn't. And I'd get really, I kind of get really, um, I guess, anxious. And I'd, I'd get into these cycles of being really upset because I'd always try and keep things static and um I wouldn't go with the flow I wouldn't allow myself to be ever changing and constantly molding into every situation that I'm in and so in terms of my true self I say I'm a fundamentally I just feel I'm just human and everything else is just layers that I have right now but I might not have them tomorrow so I could be this person I am today but tomorrow my, everything might be taken away from me and so what I try and do is always keep myself centered so I practice this idea called equanimity where even if someone is giving me a compliment it's no different to if someone is um giving me an insult so and that's how I try and keep in this kind of like centered place Mm, because it, it's from the inside it's not from the outside in and I suppose that that makes sense yeah mm, that's really cool thank you for joining us for this episode of offline visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously and upcoming community events follow getoffline.co on instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them. <laughs>